We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Welcome all who are here with us in, in the gymnasium this morning and also all of our listeners on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide KFUO.org. We're going to continue our custom today of looking at the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday. So if you're in church next Sunday, this is what you should hear. In this class, we have an opportunity, of course, to study and discuss it a little bit more than we do when we just read them in church on Sunday or even preach on them. We don't have the time and the opportunity that we do here for that. Let's begin with a word of prayer then this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we considered this morning the baptism of your Son in the Jordan River at the hands of John the Baptist, we thank you also for our baptism, for your coming to us in that baptism and clothing us with your Son's righteousness and making us heirs of everlasting life. We thank you that daily we can live in this baptism with the assurance of sins forgiven and everlasting life. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us and equip us and guide us as we continue in our study of your word, looking especially at the lessons that we will be hearing next Sunday in church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For those that are here in the gymnasium, we have sheets on the side uh, along with Bibles. And we're going to be looking at the lessons for the third Sunday after the Epiphany, January 21, next Sunday. The collect, as you see at the top here, remember I always say a collect is just what its name implies. It's a short prayer that is supposed to collect the main thought or thoughts of the day and summarize it in a very concise way. And so when you come into church on Sunday morning, if you want to see the connection between the readings, uh, you can take a look at the collect. Now, having said that, I think it doesn't particularly do that really well next week, so let's take a look through. Uh, Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Well, you certainly get the idea of our own infirmities there or our own uh, problems, and we could substitute sins for that. Uh, stretch forth your, the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. What's going to be the Old Testament lesson uh, for next Sunday is the story of Jonah, and we're going to look at that in some depth. And you certainly could see there God's hand to deliver Jonah eventually from the fish, of course, his hand to deliver the people of Nineveh as they repent and uh, actually do what, what uh, Jonah goes there to preach, and God forgives them. In the gospel lesson, we're going to see Jesus calling his first disciples, uh, Peter, Andrew, and James, and John. And you see there again the, a couple things, I think, coming through. First of all, the main theme, I think, one of the main themes next week is going to be the message that both Jonah takes to Nineveh and the message that Christ preaches out in the Jordan. Christ's message is repent and believe the gospel. And while Jonah didn't mouth those exact words, his intent is certainly the same. So we get this idea of repentance and having faith or trust in God. And Jonah will simply speak the word of God and the people will repent. So you get the power of the word. 
Jesus is simply going to speak the word, come and follow me. And immediately, Peter and Andrew, and then later James and John, come and follow him. So you get that theme also of the power of the word of God. So probably those two things are going to kind of play together next week. The epistle lesson uh, is off on a different subject, and we'll get to that hopefully near the end. I want to start with Jonah, though, in your Old Testament, uh, right, right under the collect on the feet. And notice there, it says, this is uh, for those at home, Jonah 3, uh, starting at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Well, let's stop for just a second now. So if the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that what happened. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a first time. That's right. We got to, first of all, say that Jonah, we think, was a a prophet uh, around, he's usually dated around 790 or so, 797, 80 B.C. in the north. He is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, mentioned by name. As, as being a prophet during the time that Jeroboam II was reigning in the north. And uh, Jeroboam II was not a good king. Uh, neither was Jeroboam I, for example, uh, either. But he is mentioned by name. We won't look at the reference, but as I mentioned, it's in 2 Kings 14. He is, he is mentioned specifically uh, in verse 25 uh, as being a servant uh, through whom the Lord spoke, the God of Israel spoke. Um, so he, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time today, but let's talk about what happened when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and almost in a, almost a direct uh, repetition of what we have in our chapter 3, back right at the beginning of the book, God tells Jonah to go where? Anybody recall? Nineveh. Nineveh. And Nineveh, we know a little bit about, Nineveh was and became the capital city of Assyria. And remember, Assyria is a nation that is always seemingly at odds with God's people. In fact, God is going to use Assyria uh, about 70 years later uh, to bring judgment upon the north and actually uh, take them over. And it's it became the capital city, did Nineveh. It's about 500 miles northeast of where uh, uh, Jonah would have been. Uh, Jonah is in this town called Gath Hepper, which, again, we know is in the northern part uh, at this time. So God says, go to Nineveh and basically preach to them. Nineveh was known particularly for a couple of things, its harshness, its violence, toward especially those who were prisoners or those who were outside of their own people. Uh, was known for a great uh, evil back at that time. So not an easy place to go. You'll recognize today if I tell you that uh, Nineveh is right across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul, okay, in northern Iraq. Okay? So that's where... God tells Jonah to go. And they are actually excavating that area even even today. So now, uh, recalling the story, when the word of the Lord came the first time, was Jonah obedient? Did he say, yes, Lord, uh, I'll get on my way right away? Just the opposite. God tells him, you know, I'm going to do this, you're facing this way. God tells him, go northeast, 
500 miles to Nineveh. Where does Jonah end up going? West or northwest, we're not, the, the town Tarshish, Tarshish, we're not sure. There's two main uh, theories. It might have, some equate it with Tarsus, that was in Paul's day, of course, Tarsus. Uh, or there's another town in Spain, which would be even further to the west, called Tartessus. And the two leading theories are that's, that's where he was going. The point is, he was going in the exact opposite direction, okay? It would be like if, if God tells me from St. Louis here to go to Chicago, and I turn around and head toward Houston, okay? It's the exact opposite direction is what we want to get across. So, he's, he's being disobedient to God the first time. And what happens? Does God let him get away with it? No. He's on a boat, and remember, a big storm comes up. Uh, and Jonah is down in the lower level of the boat sleeping. Well, gee, now, does that sound familiar? Who was sleeping also during a great storm? Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. A little different here, though. They go and wake him up. They wake up Jonah. And uh, trying to figure out what's going on and why this guy is sleeping, they end up casting lots. And we don't know exactly what this casting lots is. It was some way... It's been compared to drawing straws or, uh, I hate to use the analogy of rolling dice because that's a little, uh, it has other maybe connotations to it, but some way of trying to determine uh, who is at fault. And a lot fell to Jonah. And so they figure out and they start asking him, you know, what is this you've brought upon us? And so to make a long story short, Jonah encourages them to throw him overboard. And they do, and what happens immediately? Storm is silenced, right? Then, God doesn't leave him there, doesn't leave him drowning in the water. God provides a great fish, sometimes called a whale, but it's just a very, very large fish, and swallows him up, and how long is Jonah in the fish? Three days and three nights. Kind of remember that because... The uh, only prophet that Jesus in the New Testament compares himself to is Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus will even compare himself to Jonah. And just a word here while we're talking about Jesus and Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah years ago, uh, even unfortunately among some in our synod, was a popular candidate to be taken just as a myth, that it really didn't happen, uh, that uh, this was just a myth in the Bible to kind of teach us a story or, or teach us several lessons uh, from God. And so uh, people were denying the historicity 
uh, the accuracy of the book of Jonah. And, uh, and, and primarily on the grounds that, oh, come on, a fish swallowing up a guy, uh, come on. Uh, we uh, obviously take Jonah as an historical event. It is reported to be such. It is not written in poetry or any other type of genre that would make us think it is not. And more importantly to me is the fact that Jesus takes it as an historical event. He doesn't refer to it as a myth. So uh, just to say that right up front, that, that we take this as an historical event. Unlike a lot of the prophets, when you read, for example, Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's more the message of the prophet that is the big thing in the book. Jonah is a little different in that he only says, in Hebrew, he only says five words to the people in Nineveh. But the big thing about Jonah is what happens to him, you know, his life. So in this way, the book of Jonah is a little bit different than some of the other prophets in that it's not just his, what comes out of his mouth, his teaching, but it's what happened to him in his life uh, that's really important, okay? Then uh, we go to the story. What happens then? Right after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, God speaks to the fish, and what happens? Vomits him up on dry land, to quote the Old Testament exactly. Vomits him up on dry land, and here we are now at our text. And notice that we pick up now with that having already happened to Jonah. We pick up here starting at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, it's interesting. Does God do any threatening here of Jonah? No. Does God remind him of what happened the first time? No. God could have come to him, right, and said something like, this is your last chance, buddy. You know, remember what happened the last time. And uh, maybe, maybe we won't spit you up on dry land next time. No. God simply very uh, succinctly comes and says, gives him the command, go to the great city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, we think, uh, from excavations, almost eight miles in circumference around it, uh, from uh, seven and three quarters, but around it. So it was a large, fortified city. It also had other cities around it. It's kind of like when we talk about St. Louis. Well, how big is St. Louis? Well, what are you including? Are you including just the Technically, the city of St. Louis, or are you including the suburbs? Uh, same thing here. We've got a great city, but it's also surrounded by other uh, towns and cities as well. And notice there, what's, what's Jonah supposed to say? The message that, he give, that God gives to him, right? He doesn't even tell him yet what the message is going to be. Just go there and proclaim the message 500 miles away to a city that is known for its uh, sin and for its violence and treating people in a, in a very uh, hard way, okay? So notice now, verse 3, contrary to the first time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, we'll stop there for a second. Um, 
Some people say, well, it took three days to go through it. If you just keep on walking, you could get through there faster than that. A uh, couple things. Uh, he probably isn't going to just go walking straight through it. Secondly, there's the whole idea of you arrive on the first day, you prepare, you go in the second day and do whatever you're going to do, and then come out the third day. That's usually the way it's explained. Because you could say, well, gee, you could walk that in less than three days. And that's probably what's, what's happening here, that, that arrival, then the actual work, and then the leaving after that. So, uh, verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. In Hebrew, it's five words. That's all he says. And notice there, he doesn't delineate the sins of the people of Nineveh. He doesn't, uh, this isn't a long, flowery sermon here where he is giving them a very detailed and nuanced word from the Lord. He's, he's not, he, he simply says, 40 days from now, and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. You'll be no more. That's it. And uh, what happens now, let's, let's stop for a minute and think. Any other times that 40 was a significant number in the scriptures? Where, where do we see 40, Scott? Floods, 40 days on the ark, right? Noah on the ark, 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, well, first of all, if we go 40 years in the wilderness for God's people in the Old Testament, wandering the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness for Christ as he is tempted uh, by Satan, okay? So 40 is a pretty significant number, biblically speaking. And here the message is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, okay? Now, what happens as a result of that? Verse 5, shockingly, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, the, you can't help but see the irony here that the people of Nineveh, of all people, believed God and repented. How often in the Old Testament... Then God's prophets preached to God's own people, and they didn't repent, and they didn't seem to believe. But here, the wicked, evil Ninevites, the last people, they are Gentiles, by the way, let's not forget that as well, they are the ones who repent and declare, what are they doing in, uh, uh, by putting on sackcloth? What, is, what are they doing there? Yeah, that is a sign of repentance or a contrition. It's a burlappy, uh, scratchy kind of fabric. It is not what you would put on if you wanted to feel good. Let's put it that way. Just the opposite. It's going to irritate your skin. Uh, many times in the Old Testament, the prophets would do that when they were in mourning or when they were, uh, you know, just very upset about something that had happened and sometimes sit in ashes also. But they, they declare this fast to take place, and the eating, uh, lack of eating, you know, makes you hungry, makes your, your stomach hurt. You put on these, this, disc, uh, these clo this clothing that is, is not comfortable at all, in fact, just the opposite, and it is sort of a way of a self-inflicted self uh, suffering, basically, uh, as a result of your sin, okay? And so, of all things, this is what is happening. 
And that, that passage that I read you earlier where Jesus contrasts the, uh, he speaks to the Pharisees and he tells them that on the last day, the people of Nineveh will stand in judgment over you because they repented and you don't. You know, the irony here. And it points out again the power of God's word, right? Uh, nothing very eloquent came out of Jonah's mouth, but it was the power of the word of God. Now, I am at a loss for why next Sunday we are omitting. You see, it's Jonah 3, 1 through 5 and 10. <laughs> so if you've got a Bible, I want to read just real quickly verses 6 through 9. I, again, I'm at a loss as to why we're omitting them uh, next Sunday. But uh, let's just start. The, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and we think there are one or two possibilities as to who this guy is from history. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Isn't that amazing? One of the most powerful guys on the face of the earth takes off his royal robes, comes down, and sits in sackcloth and ashes himself. Okay? Then going on, uh, verse 7, And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So they're going to have a fast. They're fasting here. There's no eating. And notice it's not only the people. It's the animals as well. This entire nation is going to go through this together. Um, then going on, uh, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember I told you they were known for their violence there. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice there, the king is not assured yet at all that God isn't going to destroy them in 40 days. He simply calls on the people to repent, to fast, to put on sackcloth. And notice he says, maybe you know, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Okay? So, and again, I don't know why those are omitted next Sunday, but I thought that it is so powerful what happens there in this great nation. And then notice what happens uh, back to verse 10 that is included. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God uh, sees what happens there and it's sort, of a, it's sort of a law gospel situation, isn't it? The law has been applied. The people repent, and God does not destroy them. Okay? Jan? That's a good question. How did the people know about God? Uh, back on the boat, back in chapter 2, uh, or I'm sorry, back even in chapter 1, Nineveh, or, uh, Jonah identifies himself as a, God, a man, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven. So whether that lore made it there before him or not, we don't know. But yeah. 
Yeah, the question, I should repeat the question for those listening online, uh, was if Jonah doesn't mention anything about God, how do the people, you know, and I think here, the, how do the people uh, and the king talk about God? And, you know, we've got to say, first of all, maybe that in chapter 1, that Lord got there. Secondly, though, uh, they certainly back in those days thought of, if, you, if one country defeated the next country or one country destroyed the next country, it wasn't just that your country was better, it was that your God was superior. And so they're probably thinking here, they, they were convinced that what Jonah said was going to happen, which would mean their God, the true God, was more powerful. And so it's interesting here that they called this fast, they put on the sackcloth, the idea is maybe God will relent. All right? Now let's think big picture here. How is this a good explanation for what happens to all people in general? What has God said about all people in general that by our nature we are children of wrath, facing death, facing eternal punishment, right? And that has been proclaimed uh, you know, far and wide throughout the scriptures. And yet we have, in, we're going to see in the uh, gospel lesson, we have Jesus saying, repent and believe the gospel. And what happens? God relents of his judgment and gives us salvation, doesn't he? Gives us life. And so in a way, God's grace shown to the Ninevites is nothing more than the same kind of grace that he shows to all people who trust through the word his offer of salvation and life through Jesus Christ. So what happens there is sort of a foreshadowing of what God is going to do on the cross through Christ and offer, offers it, obviously, to all people. One other point. Any of you remember, again, it's not, in our, it's not in our lesson. What is Jonah's reaction after the people of Nineveh repent and trust in God and God does not bring about the punishment? Is Jonah's reaction one of, that is great. I want to thank and praise God for not destroying the people. How gracious is God? Uh, is that his reaction? Just the opposite. Just the opposite. Again, you don't have it, but let, let me just read uh, chapter 4, just a little bit of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he is resentful that God is gracious toward the Ninevites, and forgives them and doesn't destroy them. You ever have that feeling in your life? Sometimes resent that we, we pretty well, I think, forgive one another just as we have been forgiven. But are there times and are there certain people that we say, I guess God's going to forgive them anyway, right? There's that old sinful side to us 
that can even resent God's grace being given to some people. Or we don't think maybe they've suffered quite enough yet for, for them for, to be forgiven, right? We think uh, just a little more would be just fine, God, before you let up, right? So this, this is a, this is a you know, we can look at Jonah and be so critical of him and say, how unforgiving, how ungrateful you could possibly be. But we have to realize that there's a part of that that can live in us as well. That, you know, most people were willing to forgive, but then there's that one. And that one that did this to me, right? And I'm not quite so ready yet. And, and to think that God is going to let them skate by for this, you know. Uh, and, and all kinds of things that, that we tell ourselves. So we see a little bit of ourself in Jonah at times as well, right? God is willing to give the Ninevites a second chance, isn't he? Uh, are we always ready to give people a second chance in our lives? Or are there times when we say, hmm, I'm not so sure. So anyway, it kind of ends, the book kind of ends in a, kind of leaves it hanging there that, remember, Jonah goes out, he's sulking, he's, God provides a little uh, broom tree for him, it's nicknamed a broom tree. Jonah sits under it, uh, he sits, and then remember, it, it ends up dying, and Jonah is upset about the broom tree dying, and God points out the irony there. You're, you're upset that all these people in Nineveh live and a tree dies, right? And that's where it ends. <laughs> we, wish, we wish we knew, you know, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? But, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful accounting of God's grace, even to some people who were known to be the most wicked of all times. And you see the abundant grace of God that for at least a while, they are given a second chance. And we wish we knew more about, well, then what happened after this and why did you know, why did they end up being, God raises them up to come and destroy the northern kingdom eventually. We wish we knew more of the details of what happened after this, okay? All right, let me stop there for a second. Oh, by the way, when we're th- speaking of second chances, can you think of, and he's, he's going to be called later on in the gospel lesson, can you think of a disciple who got a great big second chance? Peter, right? Denies even knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And after Christ rises from the dead, he reinstates Peter and tells him to go and feed his sheep and so on, care for his lambs. So you might hear a sermon next Sunday from some pastor named um, The God of Second Chances, is I think what I'm going to preach on next Sunday. You see the repentance and forgiveness that God has. All right? Let me open it up. Any questions or any comments on this? Yeah, the question was, what about why 40? Why is 40 such a significant number? And other than we just see it repeatedly, there doesn't seem to be any, any big uh, reason. Just like number 7 is many times a number for God used in the Scriptures and so on. Just sort of the numerology of that time. Yes? Right, yeah, the question was, are we to assume those are... Those five Hebrew words are the only words that he ever spoke there. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. We're not told what it is, but that was, that was his message. Scott. Yeah, Scott's comment is a good one. That it is so comforting 
to see that no one is outside of God's offer of salvation and his graceful invitation. I don't know, I was thinking yesterday, who would we compare this to today? I mean, would we think of, uh, of, of terrorists or of, uh, you know, of ISIS members? Or who would we you know, compare this to today that has such a, a reputation for violence and, and, and uh, all of that? And again, God's offer goes out to all, to everybody. Yes? The Nazis. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good comparison. All right, anything else? All right, now let's go to our gospel lesson. And our gospel lesson is rather uh, short. It is Jesus calling uh, two of the uh, two sets of brothers. Now, remember, just to kind of get us up to speed, uh, we just today, at least here at St. Paul's, uh, observed the baptism of our Lord by the hands at the hands of John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Then. Remember, what comes right after that? Right after Jesus is baptized, what happens? He goes into the wilderness. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Again, for 40 days, he is tempted there by Satan. And now we're coming upon what's coming next now. And that's going to be the very active three-year public ministry. It's already begun with his baptism, but now the first thing he's going to be doing is preaching and calling disciples. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't begin by doing a bunch of miracles. He doesn't begin by, you know, casting out demons and healing people and so on. First thing he seems to be doing here is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand and calling disciples to come with him, okay? So starting at verse uh, 14 of Mark chapter 1, after John... Let's read through the whole thing, then we'll go back and take it apart. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right. So you get, it starts off, and Mark kind of gives us a little context here that he says John was put in prison. Now, this would be, of course, John the Baptist, who is in prison. Do you recall, again, this is outside of our lesson, why was John the Baptist in prison? He objected to a marriage, remember, that the Herod family, there was Herod the Great, his son Herod Antipas, and another son, Philip. Okay? And Herod Antipas is the one who is ruling in Galilee at this time. And Herod Antipas has his brother Philip's wife. Now, this family tree was so, uh, what's the right word, uh, intertwined, maybe is a good word, that Herodias, who was Philip's wife, and Herod Antipas also 
had as his wife was also the niece of both, married to her uncle and her uncles. Figure that one out. It'd take a while to diagram that one, wouldn't it? This whole family, I think I mentioned the last time I was here a little bit about Herod the Great, who was just plain, he was one of the great builders of all time. And you can still uh, travel to Israel today and see uh, the remains of things that he built. Uh, Masada, for example, way down south was a winter retreat uh, for him. Uh, Caesarea uh, Maritime, right on the sea, uh, right on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, is incredible with a huge amphitheater. But it's there, I think I mentioned last time, that when he had his wife, whom he suspected of being unfaithful, killed, he had her preserved in a pool of honey there so that he could observe her great beauty even when she was dead. That's how, that's how crazy this guy was. And it was so paranoid, he killed both of his sons, killed his wife, killed a bunch of other uh, associates, uh, was so paranoid. Well, anyway, you know, the, uh, the old expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. These are his sons and his granddaughter, okay, who are involved in this. Now, John objects to this. John the Baptist objects to this marriage. And remember that the daughter then of Herodias comes in to dance for, at a big party, dance for her father, and then father is so pleased, he says what? I'll give you anything, even uh, half of my kingdom. And then Herodias tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And that's what ends up happening. And remember before this, John the Baptist comes, John the Baptist sends, he's in prison, and remember, he sends his, some of his disciples to Jesus and asks what? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? You know, things, things aren't looking like they probably thought they should when the kingdom is going to come now, right? And there he sits in prison, and he is going to be beheaded, uh, following through with, you know, the king swore that on oath in front of all of his guests. He's going to do it. And so John... This comes a little bit later on in the book of Mark, but we're getting it kind of set up right here. It's going to be foreshadowed right here that this is going to be coming. So this is during this time now. And Jesus goes into Galilee. Guess who the ruler is in Galilee? Herod Antipas, the same guy who locked up uh, John the Baptist. This is really a gutsy move on Jesus' part, you know. He's going right into, the, right into the thick of it here. And Galilee is up north. There's the, the Sea of uh, Galilee, which we're going to uh, be looking at here in just a moment. But uh, you've got to wonder, is this an intentional sort of in-your-face that Jesus is doing here? You know, you've got John the Baptist. Well, I'm not backing down. I'm coming. You know? It wasn't his time yet, but he, he, he sure didn't retreat to the south. That's for sure. So he says here, uh, proclaiming, he goes into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. What do we call normally the good news of God? Gospel, yeah, the good news, right? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, let's kind of take that apart just a little bit. What does he mean by the time has come? Everything that the prophets have been pointing to, right? 
all these predictions, everything since Genesis 3.15 that God is going to send one to crush the head of Satan, the time has come. This is it. In other words, don't miss it. (laughs) That's what he's out there preaching, right? The time has come, and he goes on to say, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We, We hear that phrase a lot. It's obviously not a political geographic, is it? Jesus would later say, my kingdom is not of this world, right? When he and Pilate are going back and forth. What is the kingdom of God? Who rules in the kingdom? Let's start there. That's easy enough. God, or in this case, Christ, but God in general. And how does God rule in this kingdom? Does he rule by force and coercion and uh, 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 tyranny? By grace. He rules by grace and love. He rules in our hearts, right? By grace and love. And that kingdom is not bound by time. It stretches all the way back. It's not bound by geography. It stretches across the world. It it knows no bounds. So he's saying here, God, the time has come. God is intervening right here and now. The kingdom of God is near. Okay, this ruling in your hearts has come near. Now, what does it mean to repent? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. What does it mean to repent? Turn around, yeah. It literally means to have a change in mind. That's the literal transliteration of the Greek. But it's, it's as if I'm going in one direction and I turn around and go the other way. Well, what am I turning away from when I turn around? Sin, right, exactly, sin and evil. I turn around and go the other way, okay? So Jesus is calling. Now, who was also saying that very same thing? John the Baptist, right? So again, this is very dangerous, uh, humanly speaking, for Jesus to be out here doing this in the territory of Herod Antipas. Same thing that this guy John the Baptist that we got locked up here was saying, right? So turn away from sin and secondly, believe the good news, right? And the good news is that he's going, as he's going to be telling them, you know, that there is forgiveness, there is restoration through him, right? Now, verse 16, Jesus walks beside the Sea of Galilee. Now, Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake, actually, in the, in the northern part of, uh, of Israel. And uh, it is fed by the Jordan River. In fact, the Jordan River comes into it, and the Jordan River goes out of it, <laughs> north and south. Uh, you get the, the melting of snows, uh, the mountains in the north, and they feed down the Jordan River into that body. It's about 13 miles by about 8 miles or so. It's not a huge body of water, but on the other hand, it's not just a little, you know, a little puddle either. It's a, it's a pretty good size. Uh, and so there was a thriving fishing business there. By the way, uh, you go there today, they have a fish that is named the St. Peter fish. And you can go to a restaurant and have the St. Peter fish either uh, all filleted and on a bun or with the bone still in it on your plate with an eye staring right up at you. Well, the St. Peter fish is actually tilapia. I hate to, I hate to take the, uh, the mystique out of it, but it's tilapia. And uh, 
But uh, the point is there's a, there's a thriving fishing business there, uh, and these guys had nets that they would throw into the water, and the weights on the nets would collapse around the fish, and they would haul the, the fish in. And we see here that this was the occupation of at least four of these disciples. And Jesus, you know, this is kind of, he's, he's going to their place of work. And he says, come follow me. I'd be the equivalent today, I guess, of Jesus walking through an office building, you know, and saying, hey, come follow me. Right? So he goes, and Simon, who's later, of course, going to be Peter. He's going to be renamed a few chapters later. Uh, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, come follow me, he said, I will make you uh, out to fish for, I will send you out to fish for people. And notice there, at once, they left their nets and followed. A lot written on this, the power again of the word. The, um, uh, Dr. Veltz, I know, in, one of, in his commentary, talks about the, the draw, drawing power of Christ. Uh, there's also speculation, is this really the first time that they saw him or heard of him? We just, we just don't know. We're not told anything different about it. Okay? Um, then, going on, when he had gone a little further, he saw this James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called to them, and they followed him. Now, notice there, why would I conclude at the end of verse 20 that James and John's father Zebedee's fishing business was a little more... Uh, a larger operation. They left, they, yeah, they left behind other workers. They left behind hired men. There's a lot that, uh, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but there's, there's a lot of speculation that James and John and Zebedee were wealthier people and that later on, after Jesus is arrested, who is inside the courtyard and lets Peter into the courtyard because it's said that this guy was known to the high priest, John. John's the one inside the courtyard. John opens the gate, and it's mentioned that the high priest knew John. Why would the high priest know John, except that maybe they had a lot of money and were known to the priestly clan, okay? It's a little, just a little sidebar. But, you know, Peter and Andrew, we don't get that same sense. It might have been just a smaller fishing operation on their own. But Zebedee's appears like it was kind of maybe a little bigger operation here, not just a real small thing. Kind of interesting. These guys are the first guys called. James and John, remember, remember what their nicknames became later on? Sons of Thunder, James and John. The Sons of Thunder, because they're going through Samaria. And uh, the Samaritans are not, they, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're not receiving Jesus at all. And remember, James and John say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us now to call down thunder upon them and consume them? <laughs> and Jesus, no, no, no. So they, they got the nickname Sons of Thunder from that. Then remember, who is always in on the inner circle when something big is going to happen? Not only James and John, but also Peter. Yeah, Peter, James, and John. Um, you know, so three of the four that are called here on this very first encounter are going to be in on what sometimes is called the inner circle of the disciples, you know. Uh, Peter, James, and John 
are the ones that Jesus takes up on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's, when he's transformed, uh, in front of them, transfigured. Um, Peter, James, and John are the ones that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes further to pray with him. Uh, you know, there, there's, anytime there's something big happening, it seems that Peter, James, and John are around. We don't hear so much about the others, but definitely they're mentioned uh, as being there. Well, they're all called here on this first, on this first day. And, um, you know, again, history outside of the Bible will tell us that all of these disciples, with one exception, are going to end up martyrs as a result of their faith. They are all going to be executed. John being the exception, he will be exiled to the island of Patmos, and history has it ended up living out the rest of his years after that in Ephesus, uh, taking care of Mary, just as he promised Christ from the cross. But anyway, we're at the very front end here. These guys are called. But notice the message consistent with Jonah is one of repentance, believing God, and living as a result. Life. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Questions, comments? This is rather just kind of a straight narrative. There's not really a lot here. Jane? Yeah, the question was, which Herod killed the babies? And that would still be the Herod the Great, the one that's when Jesus is born. Yeah, yeah. Uh, killed all the, ch- the male children two years and under in Bethlehem, which, by the way, was probably not a lot of kids. Uh, Bethlehem wasn't a large city by any stretch. Actually, kind of a small place, uh, out-of-the-way place. Anything else? All right, real quickly... Uh, the, the epistle lesson is, uh, remember I told you that many times the epistle lesson is something completely not connected, although maybe you'll find a connection here. I certainly don't. Uh, next week, we are going to only have verses 29 through 31. This is one of these times where there's an optional, verses 32 through 30. Um, and the reason we don't have it is Sometimes it's hard to explain these things, or if you don't have a chance to like them read in church, because people conclude all kinds of things, and you don't have the time to actually go through and explain it. We do a little bit here today. All right, starting at verse uh, 29 of 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul's main point here is the time is short. So don't think about life in this world and all the ties and all the connections here in this world as the things you're going to occupy all your time and all your uh, attention with. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. There's the main thing right there, right? I can almost underline that. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now, boy, couldn't you take that out of context, right? See, I say you can justify just about anything by taking a verse out of context, can't you? For those that have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it is not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. All right, let's stop there. That's where we're going to stop next Sunday (laughs) in the church service. We're going to stop right there. Um, What's Paul's main point here? Would Paul be saying, husbands, you shouldn't care about your wives anymore, or wives, you shouldn't even care about your husbands anymore? Is that the main point that Paul's making? Uh, 
No. But the point is that, uh, as he says about even happiness and possessions and all these things, don't make that the main point, the main focal point of your life, that, again, this time is short. Um, and, and don't focus everything upon that. Uh, let's just finish off here. And Now, this is the part we're not going to read in church next week. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and in undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, everybody see why we're not reading this next Sunday? We just don't have the time to explain this. You know, we just read the lesson and then drop it. But earlier in chapter 7, Paul is saying, he's, he says, husbands, stay with your wives. Wives, stay with your husband. He's not, he's not advocating that people should separate here, okay? But he's pointing out a, a logical thing here. I guess we, we can't deny this, that if a guy is married, we'll, we'll pick on the guys here. That's usually what we like to do. Uh, if a guy is married versus a guy who is single, a guy who is married, he has to and should also be devoted and concerned and taking time and, and energy to be concerned about what? His wife, right. And Paul's argument simply is the unmarried man, that's not the case. Now, I will point out that is it always the case with a single guy that all of his attention that would be devoted to a wife is devoted to the Lord? No, that's, and Paul's not making that argument either, but he's just making a very, I guess you'd say, practical application of this. Real quickly, this is a section here in 1 Corinthians 7 that has been used to argue for celibacy on the part of priests, for example. Those church bodies that would practice celibacy would point to these verses. We would point out that it wasn't until, I had this uh, actually written down, the Fourth Lateran Council, 1139 A.D., that celibacy was actually ruled into being in the church. Prior to that, uh, priests were married. Uh, do we think Peter was married? Where did Jesus do a miracle? He healed his mother-in-law. I don't know how you get a mother-in-law if you're not married. There's a way, let me know. And... Uh, you know, the, uh, so it, 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 we would say that, yes, you, Paul certainly makes a point here. It's a point well taken. Uh, but he is not advocating that people should not get married or that uh, they should be neglecting their responsibilities to their spouse. That's not, what he's, that's not his point here. That would be over-exaggerating uh, the case, okay? And obviously... Uh, uh, as far as celibacy is concerned, uh, we, we would say in the Old Testament, the priests were married, the kings were married. In fact, <laughs> kings had too many wives is actually the problem in the Old Testament. But uh, this celibacy was, a, was a, a new thing that was brought into the church, and, and these verses are sometimes used to support it. And we would say, no, that's not, you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, that's not what Paul is saying, okay? But 
Now you see why I'm omitting those from, you know, we're not going to have the option of having those read. We're going to exercise the parenthetical option and not have them read next week, lest we get accused of some things we can't explain. All right? All right, we've got to close. We're out of time. Let's close with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.